When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. As promised, I wanted to talk about the second half of Andy Green's list of genuinely horrible albums by great artists. I have Andy with me again, and this list has been turning me upside down. I'm now starting to question the very concept of terrible albums. I guess what's funny is maybe you can get sick of the canon. So there's something pretty fun about digging through these albums that are supposedly horrible, and finding things that are good on them and then arguing with you about it. And the broad point is these are their worst albums. Even if there's great moments on them, that these are real outliers in their catalog as far as quality, in my opinion. Absolutely. And number 24, which is where we're picking up, I encourage everyone to go back and listen to number 50 through 25, which we did last week. But number 24 is Lil Wayne's Rebirth from 2010. This is infamously Lil Wayne's quote-unquote rock album. And who could blame any rapper for wanting to do a rock album, especially after he's well after the heyday of rap rock? But if rock bands could put a guy like Fred Durst or even Zach DeLaRocca from Rage Against Machine, who's a great vocalist, is like a quasi-rapper, really. He's not someone who would have been famous as a rapper. He's a vocalist. He does a thing that's very specific. So if these bands had people who weren't great rappers per se and became so big, if you are one of the greatest rappers ever, it is very tempting to try. Why can't I do rap rock? I'm a rapper. So there is a logic to it, right? I see the logic. It's just not what he's good at. It's not what his fans want. In 2010, rock was not in a very good place at all. It was just a baffling move because this was pretty near the pinnacle of his career as a hit maker. And to make a change this sudden was jarring for a lot of his audience, I think. What a lot of reviewers picked up on is he seemed to have a very vague idea of what rock would entail, sort of vaguely pop punkish, sometimes vaguely metalish. I had forgotten about the two great songs on the album. And the two mm-hmm. great songs on this bad album are the ones with Nicki Minaj and Eminem. One of the songs at the time I really liked, and so did a lot of people, and that's Drop the World with Eminem. I got ice in my veins, blood in my eyes, hate in my heart, love in my mind. I see And that one really works. Actually, the sort of the tantrumy nature of it is cool. It's a good song, actually. But the one I missed, totally missed at the time or forgot about it. I honestly don't remember. But is now I think is increasingly being recognized as this crazy lost classic is the second to last song on the album. Now I understand how this would <laughs> how people would miss this one because who's going to make it all the way to the end of this album? <laughs> right. Track 11 is Knockout and it's this song with Nicki Minaj. It's honestly great. It sounds like they should make a whole album like that, a sort of pop punky duet. By that point, I was so beaten down. I was just like, enough of this record. 
Number 23 is emblematic of something we keep talking about, the mid-80s thing, the exact point, Cheap Trick, The Doctor from 1986. Now, again, I kind of enjoyed listening to parts of this because it's so weird. I like Cheap Trick very much. At this point in existence, I'm a little bored with their great stuff. I'm not going to sit around and listen to it. I know it. I like it. What's interesting to me about this album is they're fighting against the production. I hear what you're saying. I mean, I love Cheap Trick. I think they are one of my favorite bands of all time, really. But like so many 70s groups in the 80s on a major label that had no hits for a while, they lost their power. That they really couldn't control what was happening at this point. So Epic was going to insist they do a record that's like this. And to me, I hear what you're saying. I hear a band just not playing to their strengths and being buried of shit. In my ears, They sound dejected. They're being forced to do this. Number 22, like I said, with the Fleetwood Mac album that doesn't include Lindsey Buckingham or Stevie Nicks, this feels like another cheap shot. Jim Morrison dies in Paris in 1971, and they release an album called Other Voices, which basically it had been tracks they were hoping to get Jim on. And alas, didn't work out. And Ray Manzarek and Robbie Krieger, as you write, shared the lead vocals on that. And I think they can be excused releasing one posthumous album because they'd already been working on it. Might as well just finish it. But then in 1972, they reconvene. Again, Jim Morrison still dead, as far as I know, by that point. (laughs) They release another album, Full Circle. What were they thinking? I think that they were thinking that we're still in our 20s or super early 30s, Mm. I don't know exactly, our lead singer is dead. We're one of the biggest bands in the world. We had all these big hits. Just what the hell are we supposed to do? Let's just see if it's possible to carry on, because we're at least stronger as the Doors than we are on our own. And they even toured. They did a tour with the three of them. It was a disaster. But they just tried, because the alternative was just nothing. And there's like basically nothing of worth in this album, right? No, they cover Good Rocking Tonight. It just doesn't work, which is a shame because they're all very talented guys. And the Doors, they all wrote the songs. They were a real band. That's what they were thinking. Hey, Jim couldn't play shit. He wasn't playing the instruments. He wasn't writing these instrumentals. We wrote these songs and then Jim came up with stuff on top of it. We're still the same guys who did that. They obviously should have gotten a new frontman. If they'd found a new frontman or woman, whatever. They thought that they by themselves had the charisma to continue. It's insane. They didn't think of actually doing that until the early 2000s. It took them 30 more years to be like, wait a minute, we could get somebody else to (laughs) sing the songs. (laughs) Poor guys. Number 21, not 1986, but close enough, 1983. And Carole King, I had no idea this album existed, none. Carol King tried to make her own new wave album. It's called Speeding Time. Weirdly, it has a lot of the same people she made Tapestry with, but it's just totally misguided. Yeah, it was even Lou Adler that was producing it. It was Russ Kunkel on drums. It was a good bunch of people, but it was 1983. And... It was only 12 years post-tapestry, but those 12 years were 12,000 for record production standards and everything else. And I think she wanted a hit that could be on MTV, but 
my God, it did not work. And it's been basically erased from history. The way that they made albums in the 70s, a lot of the basic things as far as organically recording people playing in a room perfected in the 70s. We've never gotten better at that thing. And that's now a timeless sound that indie musicians might chase, like Miley Cyrus might chase this just very classic, perfect sound. People would kill to make a record that sounds like Tapestry. You would have to work so hard just to recapture that sound. Or Joni Mitchell Records or Steely Dan Records, they sound so perfect. It's not like we've improved on that. They never improved on that when you're trying to do that particular kind of thing. But the terrible irony is it was so, 1983 was so close to the 70s that this perfect, organic, beautiful way of recording seemed dated. Instead of sounding beautiful, it sounded horrible. Even the same people, the same producer in a similar studio, if you hear computer eyes. singing about a computer yeah all you have to do is that's the very beginning of the record all we have to do is hear that and you just know this record is a horrendous mistake but at the same time the thing is being a legend doesn't pay the bills you're trying to be an ongoing recording artist and this is what people are telling you have to do yeah and there's so much focus on tapestry as the 70s went on she was selling fewer and fewer records she could never recapture like that tapestry thing it was a real struggle for her so i get the motivation to try and be modern if her other stuff it just wasn't working number 20 it's very funny that this album exists queen much like the doors needed a singer and around 2008 they got the guy who was the miles kennedy of his generation uh, and this guy was Paul Rogers. I'm not a fan of Miles Kennedy, who sounds like he's always sounds to me like he's in Jesus Christ Superstar. He has a great voice, but it's this non soulful, non rock and roll thing to me. Not a fan. Paul Rogers, on the other hand, truly, Paul Rogers is a great rock and roll singer. Free is an amazing yeah. band. He's a great singer. I like his work in Bad Company and Free. Queen, however, was a weird match for him. <laughs> And even they admitted it in the years that followed that he was too bluesy for a bunch of their stuff. And so on the concert stage, it was really struggling to make a lot of sense. They're doing a weird show where they're doing some bad company hits, some free hits, and then the Queen songs. (laughs) It was just like, what the fuck is this? It didn't really make a lot of sense to see Queen and then they're playing All Right Now and feel like making love. It was billed as Paul Rogers and Queen. So it wasn't Queen per se. It was like Paul Rogers and Queen. And they were trying to do this thing. And that's bad enough. And it's also funny because Paul Rogers is in every way good and bad, the sort of classic, growly, macho, classic rock vocalist. And, yeah. and Freddie Mercury, what was great about him on every level is he wasn't that. And so you completely miss one of the, perhaps the most important element of Queen is that can't be theatricality. You take that away and just give this growly, macho guy, you've lost 90% of what makes your band yeah. good. And... The last thing that Queen fans wanted in 2008 was a new Queen record where the dude from Bad Company sings the new songs. It was just nobody was asking for this to exist at all. Not a classic album. Unfortunately, our friend Christian Horde wrote in his review that the song Say It's Not True recalls Air Supply. I think people don't even realize now that music could be as bad as Air Supply. There's nothing as bad in current music as Air Supply. So yes, that's as bad as you can get. 
not good, didn't work out. But Adam Lambert, much better parent. Yeah, and what's noteworthy is they got with Adam Lambert 10 years ago or even more, <laughs> and they haven't recorded a single new song with him. So they learned their lesson with this. <laughs> Maybe they should redo the Paul Rogers album with, with Adam Lambert uh, since I don't it doesn't exist. So. so number 19... Now, what I'm about to say is probably going to piss people off, but number 19 is George Harrison's Gone Trapo. Now, here's the thing about George Harrison. Obviously, I'm a huge fan of George Harrison, Beatles, very good band, all that needless to say. George Harrison has some in his 70s catalog. Towards the end of the 70s, he was making some horrendous albums. His voice was, for a while, really going. These hoarse-voiced, terrible albums with very minimal songwriting. He was really losing it. Is this worse than those 70s albums? Because there's some bad stuff in there. I think it's the worst one, but there's some really bad ones in the late 70s. He basically stopped giving even half a shit. He was just doing cocaine and funding movies and being into race cars. And the music was just an afterthought, but he owed, but he owed records on his contract. Much like the Carol King record, all you have to do is hear the way it starts with Wake Up My Love and the most ob- one of the most obnoxious synth riffs I've ever heard in my entire life. I couldn't even find a good song to, to make the title track. This title track is, it's like his attempt at a Jimmy Buffett song, but if Jimmy Buffett was heavily sedated, it's really bad. I think one of my problems with the Martin Scorsese, George Harrison documentary, which was also was way too long, I think it would have been more interesting if it more acknowledged this sort of creative downfall that he then picked up from with Got My Mind Set On You and Traveling Wilburys. He obviously came out of it, but there was a, to say the least, in this incredible creative lull for a lot of years. Yeah, and his comeback was awesome, but it was based off of a cover song. And the whole thing was like two years. For the whole 90s, he didn't do shit. He just (laughs) gave up. (laughs) So number 18 is Lou Reed's Mistrial. Again, from the cursed year of 1986. Very funny. This is a real problem year for people. Here's what's crazy, though. Lou Reed obviously made the album Metal Machine Music, which is literally just noise. There are certainly people who make an argument for it as a piece of avant-garde music. Famously, Lester Bang said he would put it on with some degree of regularity to clear his synapses and or sinuses. But this album is, in your opinion, worse than just noise? (laughs) I spent a lot of time thinking about the worst Lou Reed record, because I love Lou Reed. But Lulu with Metallica is so crappy. I defend that one to a certain extent. Okay, okay, fine, I don't. But I definitely thought about a bit of machine music, but that wasn't aiming to be anything more than what it was. It was an avant-garde fuck you, and I wanted to not, to not trash it because it's so aggressively weird and non-musical to a large degree that it didn't even seem fair. It wasn't aspiring to be something great. Or Mistrial, in my mind, tried, and most of the songs fall so short that I had to pick it. So this is a song called The Original Rapper. That sauce is for you put it in the waffle line. Why add check what's in the batter, make sure the king is in the original rapper. He tries to be clever, and it's W-R-A-P-P-E-R, but he does, in fact, rap on it 
And honestly, he's a better rapper than D.D. Ramon, for instance, as we talked about recently. So, That's I mean, a you know, very low bar. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a song called Mama's Got a Lover that is actually quite good. But the problem with this album, other than some lazy songwriting, is some of it sounds like a ZZ Top album. He's trying to be modern in a less obnoxious way than making a synth pop record, so you should probably be glad of that. I will say on the first song, Mistrial, he sounds like he's actually off key. People were like, oh, I miss when they didn't have auto-tune on records. And so if you listen to this, you're like, do you? Because they could have really helped this one. So I think it probably wasn't made with a ton of attention to detail. There are, again, some decent songs on it. But it's also this weird, cranky, he's Lou Reed, of all people, gets moralistic. And uh, there's a song called Video Violence. He complains about how media is affecting young people, which really takes a lot of gall from, again, from Lou Reed. Yeah, sir, you are Lou Reed. What are you talking about? But yeah, he was, he became this middle-aged man watching MTV and getting offended and talking about, he's also the guy who wrote Venus in Furs and he's complaining about bondage imagery on TV. The currents rage so deep inside us. This is the age of video violence. Okay, Lou, come on. Like, give me a break, Lou. Very out of character. Number 17. Again, this is one that's so easy because the artist themselves says it's terrible. Number 17 is David Bowie's Never Let Me Down, close to 1986, 1987. He says it was his nadir. Yeah, which is really saying something because I love Bowie, but the period between less dance and heathen was like 20 years where... He really struggled to find himself, and some of the albums seemed lazy. He was chasing trends and not creating trends, which is a real reversal from the 70s. And this record, it just sucks. Where, but the key thing is they fixed it a few years ago. They got some old Bowie musicians, and they went back, and they re-recorded a lot of the music, and they paired it with his vocals. And it's so much better. He re-recorded the song Time Will Crawl. And then mm. hope that they would do it for the rest of the album, and they did. But still, not a high point. Number 16, John Mellencamp, Chestnut Street Instant, 1976. That was when he truly was Johnny Cougar. That's what it says on the cover of the album. It's this weird airbrushed picture of him. You can't even tell it's him. And this was his debut, correct? Yeah, this was his first record when he was signed to Bowie's ex-manager, Tony DeFries. And he wanted to mold him into a teen star, into like David Cassidy's by a kind of a figure. And he gave him all of these old cover songs like Jailhouse Rock and Like Pretty Woman. And the critics just ripped it to shreds. It was so vicious and it bombed so hard. It's just a ridiculously bad record. In a bonus track that didn't make the final album, but then later came out, he covered Man Who Sold the World, obviously suggested by Bowie's manager, Years before Kurt Cobain did, is actually pretty good. <laughs> so you got to give him okay. credit for that. Like you said, he barely was allowed to write any of this album. It's almost all songs by other people. And obviously, if there's one thing you can say about John Mellencamp is he's a singer-songwriter, so he wasn't even allowed to be himself. In the semi-title track, Chestnut Street. By the end of the day, 
kids would go play and I'd come staggering home with a dream. You can hear what he was going for on his own, which was also problematic, but is more interesting, which is an absolutely blatant Bruce Springsteen ripoff. Yes. Sounds more like Bruce Springsteen than Bruce Springsteen. He had someone faking a Roy Bitten piano. And he's like, on these small town streets, I I met a girl. (laughs) It just shows how overwhelming Bruce's influence could be on people. It's, it really is his, it's his Sam's town. Again, we could do a whole podcast on people who were wildly influenced by Bruce Springsteen for a while. But I think what makes this album interesting and impressive is how much he, not the album itself, but the extent to which he evolved from this and became a parallel artist to Springsteen rather than any kind of ripoff. Number 15, again, a cheap shot, Andy. Sorry. (laughs) Number 15, The Jacksons, 2300 Jackson Street, and it's from 1989. And Michael Jackson had been throwing his brothers a lot of bones on victory when he was, to say he was at his peak in 1984 would be an understatement. He was an absolute god. And there he was being guilted into doing an album with his brothers. And when he should have been doing his own triumphant tour, there he was back on stage with his brothers, which was honestly very confusing to 80s kids who definitely knew who he was, but really barely knew who his brothers were. They're like, I didn't see these brothers in the thrower video. Who are these guys? (laughs) (laughs) It only made sense if you were if you knew them from the Jackson Five and stuff. But if you were like a twelve year old who were you know the, the absolute core of Michael's fan base at the time, you were you literally didn't know who these guys were. Like, why is this yeah. guy bringing his family with him? It was so ridiculous. funny. Yeah, he did come in and do some decent songs on the album. The Mick Jagger duet, "State of Shock." Mini classic, a little bit underrated, but this one. He had enough. He wasn't doing it. He was on the title track and that's it. And he left his brothers to the winds and to collaborators like Diane Warren and Babyface and Teddy Riley, who are great collaborators. And they did their best. But their best wasn't good enough. So yeah, there's a song called Nothing That Compares to You and they use the numeral two and the letter U. Which is really weird because while the Sinead O'Connor version of Nothing Compares to You hadn't come out, Prince had actually put out the song back in 1985 by the band The Family. They like half stole the title. (laughs) Super weird. Michael's biggest rival, though. If that's the best song, there's nothing going on there. Number 14, Stephen Stills, (laughs) Right By You. What's going on here? 1984. What's going on was David Crosby was a freebase head at this time, was headed towards prison. And two years earlier, Stills, he had a pretty big hit when he wrote Southern Cross. And so he had plenty of time on his hands and was on a bit of a hot streak. So decided it was time to do his own record. And woof, he brought on Jimmy Page, who had plenty of time, like Post Zeppelin. But it's just a shitstorm. If you listen to the cover of Only Love Can Break Your Heart. heart. Which is 
done beautifully by CSNY in 1970. So yeah, there's a few tracks where Jimmy Page plays on this. And one is this song right by you. You got to hear Jimmy Page playing on this. Clearly not at his peak. In fact, what I'm hearing on this is so bad that I'm shocked they put it on the finished record. Perhaps, I'm just guessing that perhaps they were having more of a recreational kind of no, uh, time in the studio when they recorded I, this. They shared a fondness for certain I'm, substances. I'm offended by this. I don't think Stephen <laughs> yeah. Stills or Jimmy Page, especially in the 80s, were using any chemical substances at all. I don't, it's a ridiculous accusation. Right, right. I guess that's, yeah, that's absurd. I, absurd. I, I guess they were just trying their best. And it sounds like this for no reason. Number 13. Here we are, and back in 1986, <laughs> yes. your favorite year, Elton John, he made an album called Leather Jackets in 1986. Let's hear a review of this album. Leather Jackets has a lot of awful songs on it, and that is from Elton John, and he said it is because of, quote, the drugs, of course. Elton was just a machine for so many years. He did an album every single year, just no matter what. He just pounded them out, and he had a pretty big comeback in the early 80s. In the late 70s, he was really struggling. He did a bad disco record, and it just didn't work. And then with I'm Still Standing and Sad Songs Say So Much, he had these big hits. But in 86, he was just gone. His vocal cords, they got all messed up. He got married to a woman that he didn't even like, really. And he was on so much cocaine that this record is the sound of cocaine almost. Much like the previous record on this list, you can feel the cocaine. What's the worst song on this record? So let's hear Don't Trust That Woman. Yeah, I will say, imagine an unbroken string since the early 70s of albums that had at least one top 40 single. And finally, it's 1986, and you break that streak. That must have been painful. You're no painful. hits. What's funny is when I interviewed Bernie Taupin once, I brought up this record as the worst, and he argued that it got much worse in the 90s. <laughs> so we argued for a few minutes, aim with the low point. He strongly feels that in the mid-90s was the low point of their recording career, which I think is not true. Number 12. One of the greatest artists of all time, also one of the greatest assholes of all time. They sometimes go together. Van Morrison, this album is only two years old, and you can tell it was going to be good because he called it Latest Record Project, Volume 1. Yes, this is Van Morrison as like a commenter on Daily Caller or something. His lyrics are basically just right-wing troll screeds against vaccines and liberals and the media. It's fucking crazy. The one that, that unnerved me was they own the media. <laughs> they tell us that ignorance is bliss. I guess for those that That's control. messed up. They tell us that ignorance is bliss by those that control the media. It is they own the media. They control the stories we are told. If you ever try to go against them, you will be ignored. Yeah, he became obsessed with the COVID lockdown stuff. And he seemed to think all of COVID was a plot to bankrupt him. And listen, I, to be super sympathetic, right? To take the most sympathetic stance on this, despite the veiled anti-Semitism and the fact that he's clearly, he's been saying some absurd things. Look, for 
working musicians who counted on the income of a tour that year or those two years to be told, no, you're not touring now. And not only are you, it's not like you have to delay it two months, you have to delay it indefinitely. It was devastating to a degree that I'm not sure people truly understand. Even someone like Van Morrison, who had rocky lives, they're in a situation where their finances are shaky and they owe some money, whatever. I'm not saying necessarily this is the case for Van Morrison, but everything, your whole plans for your next decade involve the cash infusion you're getting from your next tour. And then you're told the whole world's shutting down, there's no tour, and we don't even know when you're getting back. Listen, I know that there was a frontman of a fairly big alternative band that had to start selling the record collection and stuff for cash. It was a tough situation. So I understand why he felt picked on. I think his his paranoia is unfortunate, but I'm just being sympathetic here. But I think this is talk about a a great a great artist led astray. It's just and then he did that thing. He did the self portrait thing. If it's going to be bad, you might as well also make it really long. Yeah. <laughs> so it's over two hours of this shit. Yeah. yeah, it's perfect example for this list. Number eleven, the Beach Boys' "Summer in Paradise" from nineteen ninety two. No Brian Wilson at all. But they uh, have they, John they were... Stamos. You lose Brian Wilson, <laughs> but you get Uncle Jesse from Full House. So it's same, same. In 30 seconds, how did the Stamos thing happen? Why is Stamos connected with the it's Beach Boys? What's the pre, deal? Pre-Full House, which is always forgotten by people that 1986 or so, he joins as a percussionist for some reason. He, he was like... He was some TV actor from soap operas and stuff. And I think Mike Love thought he was cool and he played music. So he's in the video for Kokomo. If you watch Kokomo, you can see Stamos in the background playing percussion and it's pre-Full House. And then after Full House, this is when he was a superstar. They loved having him on stage and stuff because he was super famous. So he just became part of the world. He's still part of the world that even 2023... If he has time, he's playing shows with the freaking Beach Boys still. So well, that answers that. What's the deal with this album? That they had a really freak hit in 1986 or seven with Kokomo, which was number one. So they really tried to keep that going and be a current band. It was tough because Brian was out of the group at this point. But this record was their summer themed record, which is not much of a stretch for the Beach Boys to do a summer record. So they redo some of their old surf songs and they cover Hot Fun in the Summertime by Sly and the Family Stone. Which is probably a bad idea. And it's just the definition of unnecessary, particularly when John Stamos is singing forever. originally sang by Dennis Wilson, and he sang on Full House also. It's just a ridiculous record that nobody needs. Yes, Mike Love, a ridiculous person taking charge, so you get a ridiculous record. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the -the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. 
Yes. Number 10, we've talked about this before. I think this one's so bad that it's also on your list of worst decisions in musical history, if I remember correctly. Yes, it is. Why not just talk about this forever? Number 10, Creedence Clearwater Revival's Mardi Gras. And John Fogarty, one of the great frontman songwriters of all time, but he wrote all of Creedence's songs. The other dudes, <laughs> Doug Clifford and Stu Cook, were the rhythm section were getting bummed out. And so Fogarty gave them a shot. They said, hey, why don't you write some songs? Yeah, and it did not work out. They are not good songwriters. The album is agonizing. Isn't there a song on there about how much one of them likes to go fishing or something? <laughs> it's called Sail Away. Yeah, just a song about mm. how Stu likes to go sailing. It's written and sung by Stu Cook. It is not a good song, especially when you look at the previous records, which were so ridiculously great. And this is right after it. John Fogarty is a pretty stubborn guy. I think that he basically let them do this <laughs> to show them how wrong they were. He was willing to release a horrendous record under the Creedence Clearwater Revival name just to humiliate his bandmates. Don't you think that's probably what happened here? It's a pure spite record. It's the exactly. all-time great spite record in rock history. Fuck you guys. Go ahead. I'm going to watch you burn and love it. And number nine, from a spite record to an act of generosity that nonetheless did not yield a good album, is Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young's American Dream from 1988. And as we discussed in the David Crosby episode, the prime of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young is so insanely short. For all the legend of CSNY, this is what's so crazy to me. You're talking about one album, one studio album, Deja Vu, great album, and then nothing until 1988's American Dream from the four of them. And here's Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young finally reunite. And the reason they reunited is that Neil Young promised David Crosby when he was at death's door, basically, with his drug addiction, that if he cleaned up, he would make a record with CSM. And so Neil fulfilled his promise, but he saved all his best songs for his soul record, so he gave them his absolute bottom shelf stuff. Which he's and always done with them from day one. He didn't get me after the gold rush. He gave him country girl. And here he didn't give them rocking in the free world. He gave them this old house. He always gives them his shit. And this record, but it was balanced out back in the day by the three of them. But they just didn't have anything at this point. So it's a disaster. And I think it's a very bad record, but it's made even worse by the fact that after all these years, they reunite and then drop this thing. That's what makes it all the more terrible. And they didn't tour behind it. The next year, he comes back so big when he puts out Freedom. And this is just completely forgotten, like the day after it came out. And now number eight is Elvis Presley. And the album is Fun in Acapulco, original <laughs> soundtrack. He should have called it Gontrapo. It's this movie, Fun in Acapulco. and it came out in 1963, as you point out, when the other albums were like Please Please Me, The Free One, Bob Dylan, Rolling Stones singles were coming out, the world was changing, and Elvis, meanwhile, was in his millionth terrible movie and making these absolutely tossed off soundtrack albums. And this is, I think, by universal decision of Elvis fans, 
the low point even among bad soundtrack albums yeah that he made these things in like a few hours it felt like he had no say like over the songs or anything but if you listen to the bullfighter was a lady Pedro the bull was a killer king of the bullfighter arena it wipe up the floor or there's no room to rumba in a sports car and then you listen to blowing the wind or please please me or something or the stones not fade away you just see how pathetically just out of touch he was with what was happening and how when he needed to really up his game, he just completely collapsed. I think what makes this album particularly painful is that the full album is attempting this sort of south of the border feel and it's just relentless. So it, it's particularly embarrassing and excruciating. You have a song called Guadalajara, Bossa Nova Baby. It's a full theme album along those lines. And it's only 29 minutes long. And I don't think he gave a lot of thought to this album. It shows why when he did the comeback special and came back with a purpose, why it was so powerful, because he really was wasting his talent. Yeah, but what's overlooked a lot is these movies were hits. That that they Mm. made real money, that they were really, that until the mid-60s, that they were on the top of the box office charts for a few weeks, that he had his audience still, that they were destroyed by critics. They didn't play well in like Manhattan or anything, but the movies made money for a while. Number seven is by John Lennon and Yoko Ono. It's from 1968. It's unfinished music number one, Two Virgins, and it's how they sort of celebrated the beginning of their relationship. It's also the beginning of John Lennon's solo career. And if you've ever heard Revolution Number no. 9 and wished there was an entire album like that, but much, much worse, yep. this would be the album for you. Uh, yeah, it's 1968 when the Beatles were obviously still the biggest group on the planet. So people rushed out and bought John's solo record and put it on and were hoping to hear songs like Blackbird or something. And then they get this. It's experimental, but it's not interesting in the least. nothing to latch on to. It's just a horrible slog. There's one moment when Yoko's kind of wailing and John seems to be imitating it on slide guitar and you're like, oh, this is kind of interesting. But yeah, it's, there's no way. I'd love to know how many people have made it through every minute of this album because it can't be that many. I think there's part of John that really thought that this was a better direction for him than the Beatles. This is my real art. And I think that was misguided. I've got to say. <laughs> but then just say. two years later, he makes Plastic Ono Band. <laughs> you know, it was in him. This, this wasn't really even music music. It's just audio verite for the most part. Number six, 1995. Black Sabbath makes an album called Forbidden. But the only founding member of the band left was Tony Iommi. How did he even have rights to... I, he had the name rights. He just, <laughs> it was just one by one. Yeah, the guys all left. It was down to just him. About two years ago, when I interviewed Neil Murray, the bass player on it, he explained to me that they told him Ice-T that he was going to produce the record. <laughs> then they show up, and it's Ernie C., his guitarist and body count. And they were, they had, they, they were like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> so, wait, so who, who even sings on this album? It's their singer, Tony Martin, who they'd already fired and then brought back. He was like the fourth or fifth lead singer. The singers goes Ozzy Osbourne, then Ronnie James Dio, then Ian Gillen from Deep Purple, and then Tony Martin. 
Then they fired Tony Martin and brought Dio back. Dio quits. Then for Forbidden, they bring back Tony Martin. Sure. The iconic Tony Martin. Yes. Uh, I'm shocked this album isn't great. Produced by the guy from Body Count, who's not Ice-T. Yes. So the album, I don't think is even on streaming, but it's on YouTube. Yeah, I'm sure somewhere in there's something good. YouTube commenters claim it's wildly underrated, the best of the Tony Martin era. I just listening to it a little bit, to me, it sounds like fake soundtrack metal band. It sounds very unconvincing. Yeah, it was just Sabbath by the mid 80s to this point. It became Spinal Tap. It just really did. It was just nothing went right. Everything was a disaster. And this was the peak of it. Number five, Bob Dylan's Down in the Groove, 1988. As you mentioned, the generally agreed low points are Knocked Out Loaded from 1986 or this one. But Knocked Out Loaded has Brownsville Girl, which is a pretty good song. This one has Silvio, though, which I like. You don't like Sylvia? It's okay live. It's a decent song. It's the best thing on the record, which is not saying a lot. I think, and you mentioned being slightly torn. I think Under the Red Sky is worse than this. Under the Red Sky I was the album he released that, a few years later. Yeah, That sucks, but Born in Time is such a beautiful song. In the lonely in the blinking stardust of a pale blue light. Mm. It, it almost redeems the entire record for me. And the title track to that is decent. And if you think they need a four-year-old daughter that he dedicates the album to, and a bunch of the songs in there are almost like children's songs on Red Sky. So if you hear right. it in that context, it makes more sense. He was trying, at least, on the Red Sky. This it's so abysmal. Here's what's weird about Down in the Groove. And I, to me, it's just more media. Again, I guess it's the wor- maybe the worst Dylan record, but it's not even that bad. It's just deeply mediocre and a little out of it. But it's the same year that Traveling Wilburys Volume 1 came out. And he sounds so engaged on that, on things like Tweeter and the Monkey Man. And so, I, I don't know. I've watched the footage of him making Traveling Wilburys, and he doesn't seem impaired by any substances. He seems pretty sharp. Yeah. I so what was going on? That had Jeff Lynne producing it, and it had George Harrison there, his buddy, to take him on. He was motivated to be his best self by so many talented people that he admired. Here, his, it was just fulfilling like the terms to his record label and not really caring. I think listening to it, what I hear is mediocrity, but also the fact that his voice was still strong. He's still writing some good stuff. I know it felt bad to people at the time, but... And is it worse than Self-Portrait, by the way? It is. And it, yeah, that there's moments on Self-Portrait that I love, and I am, that's especially true on the bootleg series of it. Even like Tired Horses, I love that song. I think what... <laughs> and I know it's crazy, I love it, but I think what happened here is on Infidels and Empire Burlesque, he tried. He really tried. And there's songs on those albums I really love, and nobody gave a shit. And I think by Knocked Out Loaded, he was just like, fuck it. I'm just going to get loaded and knock these things out. And these records are him not trying in the same way he tried in the previous two records. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's probably right. And that's why there's random covers. He just wasn't even producing enough material to fill an album. But yeah, I actually, okay, Under the Red Sky, I see your point. I think Self-Portrait is worse. 
I think you just didn't want to go for the obvious target, but I think self-portrait, self-portrait deserved its original reception. I think letting the fact that there's better stuff on the bootleg series of it override one's perception of the original album, which is that it was garbage and deliberate garbage. So um, I think it should have been self-portrait. Again, as always, your list, you're entitled to your opinion. And number four, Pantera's Metal Magic. And this is this is a cheap shot because it was it happened to be called Pantera, but it was the, they were teenagers and they didn't have their singer yet. Phil Ensemble wasn't even the singer. There was a guy named Terry Glaze, who, as you say, was basically trying to sound like Paul Stanley. And they were doing like a glam metal thing. It's an album by a bunch of teenagers. What are you going to say who hadn't found their thing yet? Dimebag still Dimebag Daryl still plays some cool stuff from my listen to this album. But yeah, it's not good. And it's so amateurish, so that's what's embarrassing. But it's amateurs, and yet, if you flip it and be like, hey, these kids who were teenagers made this pretty professional album, it's impressive. Three-fourths of the band sound professional because their father, he produced it, this guy, Jerry Abbott, who was a country singer. So he experienced making records, but they just weren't themselves yet. And the cover itself, it's like a bodybuilder with the head of a cat. You just look at the record and know it's no good. Number three is one of your favorite topics in the entire world. Number three is Yes's Union in 1991. And this is the totally weird thing that I still, no matter how many times you explain it to me or I read it, I, my brain rejects the details. But basically, there were, through very strange set of events, there were two versions of Yes. There was the one that made Owner of a Lonely Heart, and then there was the original Yes, and they were fighting each other in court. And in 1991, they decided that a Yes divided against itself could not stand, as you said, and they decided to reunite and make an album together. Yeah, but the problem was in, in that both versions of Yes, that they were both working on a new record. So there were two records that were mostly done, and they tried to merge them, but it just didn't really work. And despite having two guitarists and two keyboardists and two drummers, they brought in a bunch of these anonymous studio guys to play on it. So it's just insanity that a bunch of, that a bunch of the songs are played by other people. And even the band has just disowned the record as complete dog shit. The opening track, I Would Have Waited Forever, sounds like an AI fed the catalog of Yes trying to make a Yes song, I would say. Yes, which is very close to what happened, basically. Number two, get another cheap shot. Number two is the Velvet Underground squeeze, and there are zero original founding members of the Velvet Underground in this album. Doug Ewell, who replaced John Cale in 1968, is the only even legacy member on the album. There's no Lou Reed, and it is essentially a Doug Ewell solo record put out under the name of one of the greatest bands of all time. And what's important to note is Ewell is a great singer. On the previous two records, he's fantastic. And he was a great addition to the band as much as John Cale was missed. But the key thing is Lou wrote those songs. When you remove Lou Reed and his songwriting from the band, you almost had nothing left. It was just a name. I have a question. Why does this record sound like The Grateful Dead? I have no idea. I'm sure it was Yule trying to do a... 
and you listen to a song like She'll Make You Cry, and it sounds more like that. Maybe he forgot which band he was trying to pretend to be in. <laughs> He's got all the right words. I found the decent song. It's this song, Louise. It's just like this barroom sound to it. And it's good. I think the real point is whatever decent music is on this album has nothing to do with the Velvet Underground. That's the real and point. And their catalog prior to this is so pristine. It's so yes. great, right? They, in a short time period, they made a lot of really great music. It's all very different, and they evolved into all these phases. Then there's just this weird outlier. So speaking of pristine catalogs, <laughs> I think this entire list was a trick to get me to say something nice about Kanye West in the year 2023. You set me up to say something nice about one of the great artists of our time who then turned out to be a literal Nazi, which is a turn of events that I think we're, we're really still grappling with. How do we talk about them? One of the most extreme sort of can you separate the artist from the art things that's ever happened. And so the impact of this horror show is still, still hitting us. See, and this is very controversial, your choice for this. And I don't know, because I think Jesus is King is worse. I just don't know about this. But I also see your point. So your choice, number one, is Kanye West, yay, from 2018. And it's tough. I think Donda might be worse, too. And the other thing is, as with other albums, there's one pretty great song that I think everyone agrees. The song Ghost Town is pretty great. But it is a catalog that pretty much even Life of Pablo, where his standards started to slip a little bit, is still pretty much holds up to the rest of the catalog. Some people don't like Yeezus. I like Yeezus. I think Yeezus is cool, or I liked mm-hmm. Yeezus. I don't know. Again, I haven't resolved whether I, can, whether I can stand listening to his music, quite honestly. Ye was where the quality control slipped. This guy who had been making, who had just one of the most relentlessly great catalogs of anyone in any genre. And again, pretty pristine, even if Life of Pablo slipped a little bit. And then he makes this, but there's a lot of warning signs. It's so short. It's only seven songs. It's clear that he, that the lyrics were last minute. And then it's, I think from your perspective, right, the reason you chose is because it's the breaking point. It's where his catalog goes off. It goes off in such a severe way. I was huge Kanye fan. I think My Beautiful Darkness of Fantasy is possibly the best record of the 2000s by anybody. He made amazing stuff. I would look forward to every album and really enjoy it. And then just putting this one on for the first time, I was excited to hear it. It was just like, oh, God, what is going on? It was just ugly. And the lyrics, which he used to labor over, he tossed them out like the previous week. It's a time capsule of 2018 and the controversies of that month. And the record should be timeless. And this is so 2018. The slavery was a choice, that TMZ moment. It's reflecting that little period of his career, which makes it so uninteresting now, five years later. To me, it's just a mess and the turning point where everything just went wrong. The opening track, I think people can make an argument that there's something worthwhile in its unvarnished confession of what is really some very impaired mental health. I seriously thought about killing you. I contemplated premeditated murder. 
And I think about But I think given what's happened to him since it's just flat out disturbing. He's presumably talking about a romantic partner, certain person. Today I thought about killing you. And sometimes I think really bad, really bad things. Yeah, we know that now, Kanye. We know that. Listen, is it clever? I love myself way more than I love you. And I think about killing myself. So best believe I thought about killing you today. I guess you could make the argument that there's artistic value. But this is someone having a nervous breakdown on record. Yeah, and on the cover he wrote, I hate being bipolar. It's awesome. So... This is just diving into the brain of a very disturbed person on a very steep decline, just like mentally and creatively. I'll tell you what finally made me comfortable with the inclusion of this album on the list, even at the top, even though I think there's worse Kanye records, which is the final track, Violent Crimes, which it isn't that it's like half-assed or not thought out. What bothers me about it is it's literally one of the most sexist songs of all time. It's unbelievably sexist and paternalistic and like just messed up. A father of daughters just giving into the most cliched, like idiotic thoughts. If you believe the gossip, it made Kim Kardashian wildly uncomfortable. But he's the message could have worked, which is that he's someone who didn't treat women well and how his daughters are women and he knows they're going to have to deal with men like him. That's a perfectly legitimate message. But the way he went into it is so hilariously messed up. He talks about how they, he doesn't want their bodies to be like their mothers. He says, don't do no yoga, don't do Pilates, just play piano and stick to karate. And especially now, given everything that happens, you listen to it and your skin just wants to crawl off your body. Yeah. It's so misguided. It's also like... Again, a sign that so much worse was to come, needless to say. But there was no one around him to be like, yay, this is creepy. This is creepy. You can't talk like this. You shouldn't even have these thoughts, let alone express them publicly, let alone say this shit about your daughter on a record that will be out there forever, about your daughters that, on a record that will last forever. It's such a bad idea. How are they supposed to feel when they listen to this as they grow up? It's so inappropriate and wrong. I don't think people fully realize how messed up it is. But yeah, it's a cynic dose for Kanye's entire decline. It made people yeah. very mad because they think they there's still Kanye stands and there's also people who are like, this record isn't that bad. And Rolling Stone is just turning on him because he's a Nazi, to which I'd say, yeah, <laughs> Rolling yeah. Stone is turning on him because he's a Nazi. He said he likes Hitler. What are you supposed to do with that? Yeah. Like, he likes Hitler. It's really bad. He had already said slavery is a choice. He said horrendous things about black people. He's gone to a place that I don't see how he comes back from. I think the only way back is to say I had a complete mental health just breakdown. I wasn't myself. I was off my pills. I was not. I don't even remember saying that shit. I lost my goddamn mind. I'll never be able to get forgiveness. Please understand that was a mental collapse. That was a cry for help. That wasn't me. That's his only way out. And it'll be hard to yes, do that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And, and it wouldn't get him all the way back. But that's yes. To be like, and it lasted years and everything I said came from my illness and I am so embarrassed and ashamed, and I want people to know that no one should ever say or think like things like this, and when I'm in my right mind, I don't. I think that would, but I don't think it's going that way. I don't see that coming, unfortunately. Well, but in the past couple months, notice he stopped doing the interviews and stuff. Something like I threw to him, it was somebody else or himself that was like, stop 
digging the hole deeper. Shut up. And he shut up. You think when he lost everything, maybe that was the first clue? (laughs) And wouldn't leave Anya. He seems to start to understand that he was fucking everything up. He's making like, he still thought he could make cute references to this stuff. He's referring to his favorite, he, he was referring to his famous exchange with my old friend Sway Calloway, where Sway suggested that he build his own apparatus for fashion. And he said, How Sway? And then he says, I said, Slavery a choice. They said, How yay? Imagine if they caught me on a wild day. And he still thought he could make this cute. And he says, My wife calling, screaming, say we're about to lose it all. Had to calm her down because she couldn't breathe. Who could blame her? She was right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> she was right. Kim Kardashian was right. And he did lose it all. I can't say, what can I say? I, I, don't, I think what he said and done is horrendous, but I don't wish him ill. It would be great if he got himself back yeah, together. And songs shouldn't be timestamped in that way. That song is timestamped while it's happening like that week on Twitter and stuff. And that's bad and that's our show we'll be back next week in the meantime subscribe to rolling stone music now wherever you get your podcasts and please leave us five stars and a nice review on apple podcasts and spotify because that's always appreciated but as always thanks for listening and we will see you next week Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.